Well, good morning. It is uh, going to be an awesome uh, day of um, interesting warfare that's going to be happening this afternoon. But I- I'm really concerned because there's been a lot of division in this church over the Super Bowl thing. And it's really upsetting me. You know, I think we, uh, we I, I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. But uh, the, <laughs> just uh, the reality that was, we're talking about warfare. We're talking about being exhausted from warfare, especially the warfare that happens in our lives. Maybe it's with God. Maybe it's with yourself in your past or with um, maybe family. There's all kinds of places that we find ourselves kind of exhausted and war-torn. We're talking about really the, the change of perspective that can occur when it comes to God. And we talked last week especially about that change of perspective, the changing of the lenses from a, a world of war with God, a world of fighting with God, to one at peace with God. And um, this perspective conversation reminds me of, of a situation that, uh, thank God, is not happening as often right now, but has happened quite a bit in the past. And it's, um, for some reason, I don't hold to routines real well. For, me and my wife both, I guess, are, are struggling with this. And lately, one of the, or not lately, but when we first moved into our house, it happened regularly. I would wake up in a cold sweat, panicked, because I heard a noise outside of my house. It was the trash man driving away. And I realized very quickly, I don't have the trash out. And we'd run, I'd run downstairs, throwing on whatever I need to throw on to be appropriate, and always barefoot, grabbing the trash can, which has wheels on it, thank God, and just running down the street after the trash man as he's going down away from me. And it's right there in the middle. I'm imagining, like, I don't know why, I have a kind of a visual imagination, but I imagine the picture of me just freeze-framing, and I'm running like this. And it's like a caption, like, a, you know, at the beginning of a movie or a movie or a show. It's like, yeah, this is my pathetic life. I'm chasing after the trash man. And for me, it's just one of those hilarious scenes of like, that's me. And this happens often, you know, and I'm supposed to be uh, keeping things in, in, in time and all this stuff. And then I realized I heard about something else called first world problems. Anybody heard of first world problems? It's kind of an interesting, like, um, it's either a blog or something out there. It's just like first world problems are these problems that only happen in the first world that we find really annoying, like chasing your trash man down the street. Um, they don't have trash men in the third world countries. They, they burn their trash. They don't even have trash cans. It was one of the kind of realities of our experience that my problem is a first world problem, and I feel really silly about it. There are a lot of other first world problems. For example, I'll give you a couple here. Um, some of these that were listed out there on the Twitter world. It was, uh, my GPS gave me the wrong direction, so I was late for, my, for the party. It's kind of like, oh yeah, only us would be complaining that we were late for the party because of the GPS. This tiny cut on my thumb makes texting extremely painful. You know, <laughs> kind of reality. My, that Starbucks drive through next to my work is too small for my Cadillac Escalade to fit, so I had to go and wait in line. You know, it's kind of, oh, poor you. Uh, the, the movie I really wanted to see is no longer available on Netflix. So now I have to go down and drive down the street to the red box to get it. You know, these are the kind of reality of a first world problem that we can exist in this place where we find our issues, we find our struggles when really around us is amazing amenities of life. But that's not to diminish the fact that for many of us, even in a first world, can come to these emotional, physical or, or relational problems of our, of our world that are extremely difficult, damaging, uh, painful, whether you're in the first or the third world. doesn't matter what perspective you have. It doesn't seem like anything changes. And yet, what we're realizing as we've been talking is that if we come to understand that Jesus Christ has borne our, the punishment for our sins, 
As the gospel tells us that God loves us so much, even though we are so unlovable, he has given us his son. He, he removes that punishment. He removes that, that pain that we rightly deserve, that we're able to surrender and have peace with God. Not just forgiveness, but literally a reconciled relationship with God. We talked about that last week. And when we come to that realization that in Christ we can have peace with God, it changes everything. It literally changes everything, changes the way we see everything. It changes what we're, what we're dealing with. And we ask this simple question. We ask ourselves, are you willing then to stop seeing your life as a fight with God? Are you willing to stop viewing this life as a battle between you and the God of this world? And, and so... That's really where Paul begins in our conversation this morning as, as we realize that this idea, if you answer that question, you come to peace with God, it changes everything. He starts there in the book of Romans chapter 5. So well, we've been going through Romans. You want to open there with me? You can go to Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We are using the ESV. If you're using an electronic device, you can follow along there. Otherwise, if you don't have anything, Bible's under the seats. You can find it on page 942 and join with us and read through. And so what we're looking at is, um, is Paul's um, letter to the Romans. Paul was a missionary. He was originally a man who was definitely at war with Christianity, didn't believe in Christ, didn't believe or trust in the apostles or anything they taught him, was fighting the church, and God knocks him off uh, his horse, and actually now Paul turns around, becomes the greatest proponent for the gospel, sending it all over the world, and he eventually writes this, or all over Rome, and eventually writes this letter to the city of Rome and the church in the city of Rome, and he's explaining why he's going to come and what he's going to preach and why they should support him. And so we've already seen up to chapter 4 that... Jesus has come to bear our sins, to bear the weight of our sins, to make us right with God by trusting in Christ, by depending upon his work and not by anything else. And so he begins with this peace with God that happens. He says in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's saying there is he says, Look, since we have been justified, we've been made right with God. It's a courtroom scene where we've been declared not guilty By our trust in what Jesus has done, we have peace with God. So now we're in this relationship with God where we have this real peace that changes the way we see everything. We have this real reconciliation. We've been linked with God. We can have a relationship with him. We're not just forgiven. We're beyond that. We're relating with God. It changes everything. In fact, it even changes the way that we view grace. And that's where he goes to next in the text. Notice what he says. He says, through him, we have also obtained access by, this, by trust, faith, into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's a fascinating verse to me. So we begin to kind of unfold it. The change in grace to me is this, that peace with God lets us enjoy a life of grace. It changes the way we view grace to becoming a life of grace. See, before we got a little grace here and a little grace there and a little grace here and a little grace there. Now it's a life of grace. See, if you go back to me, imagine with me back to when you were, when you were made. You were one cell competing with millions of other cells to meet another cell to combine together to make you. I mean, you won the lottery that day, honestly. God gave you a grace, and that first grace was called life. There could have been a million other opportunities for somebody else to be here, but we are the ones who are here, and God graced us with life. 
And then it moves forward to the day we breathe and, we re- and, we, and we're born and we take that breath. And it's a grace that we're breathing. But even more, it's a different kind of grace. It's a grace called mercy. You see, we were born, as we found out last week, into a rebellious family. We'll find that out even more next week, but as we kind of continue examining this book of Romans. But what we realize, we were born in a war. In a war zone where humanity has been fighting God. In a war zone where humanity is saying, we don't want anything to do with you, God. We want to rule ourselves, run ourselves, and do our things. And we were born into that country. And so in essence, where God has the ability just to go, you know what, humanity, I'm done with you. Poof, you're gone. You know, everybody's dead. God wins. He could do that, but he doesn't. Instead, he gives a grace called mercy. And that first breath we breathe, even though it's not a breath of life, it's a breath of death, it's still a breath. You see, our destiny stays the same, doesn't it? Even the first breath you took was leading forward to a final breath. And it's hard to think that way, but to realize that the day we were born was the first day we started to die. But that's the reality of life. Nobody leaves this place except through that death. Unless Christ returns and something radical happens. But the point is simply made that our first breath was a breath of death. Pointing to a destiny that was not changeable. And what we received then was grace because we were alive. But then he gives us good works and we get to do good things. And we think maybe that will change the destiny. Maybe that will change the situation. But it doesn't. I mean the destiny is death and, and good works they just amount to well nothing after death. I mean really they just happen and time goes on. Everybody forgets the good stuff we did. But we enjoy the good things. We enjoy helping each other and it's a grace. It's called a grace of mercy again. It's a grace of goodness. And God gives us these little graces. But then we come to Christ. And Christ removes this death. He takes it upon himself. Yes, we'll still die, but we are bound with him. And suddenly in his resurrection, we have an opportunity to live anew. We'll breathe again one day. And that first breath will be a breath of life. Because it will never lead to death again. And that's the, that's the gospel, the hope that our lives are bound up with God who became human be, a human being to take us beyond the death to a resurrection where we can truly live again. And when we trust that, we don't just get another grace. We enter into an entire realm of grace. Verse 2, notice what he says. Though we, through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace. This obtained access is a term that means you've been introduced. You've been given the full access pass. Somebody has met you at the door and welcomed you in. That's the picture here. You've been welcomed into a realm, a brand new place of grace. One way that we described it in the last few services is that the old way of receiving grace was like you and I sneaking into a store. Where the store owner was always present. And as we snuck in, we'd find the candy. We'd grab one and we'd run out only to get caught. But he would be gracious enough that he wouldn't punish us. We were sent on our way. Other times we'd come in and we'd be exploring around. And he, the shop owner would see us and he'd walk up to us and he goes, Hey, you guys like that? Here, here's a piece of candy. Go on, enjoy. And he'd give us a grace that we didn't deserve. This unmerited favor Other times the shop owner would would be with us and he'd help us buy something. And he was with us all the time, giving us these little graces. But it wasn't until after we came to Jesus Christ that the shop owner became our dad. And he looks at us at the family meal and he says, you know what? The shop, I, I got tons of money. I don't need to sell all this stuff. Look, if you want a piece of candy, go get a piece of candy. You want to go get a carrot, go get a carrot. You want to ride a bike, go ride the bike. This shop is your shop. 
And we have this right to explore and enjoy. We have this right in life to go out and explore God's world and his wonders and, 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 and not fear that we're going to get in trouble because we touched something or we tasted something. Yeah, there's things we do wrong. And God disciplines us to train us. We still sin, but it's a different relationship. In the past, he was giving us mercy. Now we just live in the relationship of grace, where everything is about grace, where God has accepted us and loved us so much that it's a realm of grace. We belong in it. It's radically different now. Life is good, and life is right And it's supposed to be explored and filled with joy because God is with us. We're not in a war fighting him where he's nice to us once in a while. We're in a relationship of peace where he's constantly loving us. That's totally different than the old graces we used to receive. And that's what Paul's saying. It's through that faith we've been introduced to this, so much so that one day we get to hope in the glory of God. We get to see him. We get to be in his presence. And all of life then is this wonderful, joyful adventure and excitement. We go, well, hold on, Greg. What about the suffering we were talking about? What about all this pain of this emotional and financial and physical and and you name it, I've got an addiction, I've lost my home, my family is just falling apart. You really expect me to think I'm living in a world of grace with all this stuff going on? All this pain? And it seems that Paul was kind of anticipating that because he says something pretty crazy in verse 3. Look at this. He says, More than that, more than this realm of grace that we get to explore, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Okay, now you know, so go home, enjoy. Yeah, right. What do you mean we rejoice in our sufferings? You're supposed to rejoice in the chemo? You're supposed to rejoice in the divorce? Are you supposed to rejoice in the financial problems and losing your house? Yeah, we're all supposed to like throw a party. Newsflash, I'm losing my house. I don't have money to throw a party. Right? And what we're looking at here is Paul's going, no. Yes, we are supposed to rejoice. We're supposed to celebrate because of what we know happens. You see, when we're at peace with God, it changes everything. It changes the way we approach things. It changes the way we view things. We put on a new pair of lenses. It, it, it adjusts everything the way we see it. In fact, what he says is, what I, what I see here is that the sufferings actually become an approval of us for heaven. That God's doing something to show us something through the suffering. And it's this approval. This, he shows us approved um, for heaven. It, it's kind of an odd thing. And I, it's kind of odd for me to say that. Go ahead and go to that slide for me. And it, it's right here in verse 3. It says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And we go, okay, that's interesting. Until you really try to look at it and think about it. Your sufferings are supposed to produce some kind of ability for you to rejoice and be happy that you're suffering or that you've suffered. You go, how is that possible? And I reference back again, I talked last week the fact that I just finished reading a book called Lone Survivor and it's about the the movie just came out and the SEAL. And, And one of the things they do is they talk about what it takes for the Navy SEALs in their training to become Navy SEALs. And I met some other guys who told me, yeah, Green Berets and also the, um, the Rangers, these guys all go through this similar training. It's intense. It's painful. It's crazy. And he speaks about the Hell Week. And their Hell Week makes, you know, the high school football Hell Week look like, you know, they play in peewee league still. Because this is crazy what they're going through. They, they, they pretty much stay awake the first day prepping and being ready for this Hell Week they're going to go into because they're so nervous. 
Suddenly, just when they're about to doze off or things, they're, they're wondering what's going to happen, the doors are busted in. People are firing blanks into the room, just shooting like crazy. They're dropping bombs and blowing things up and, and causing just massive havoc. And they bring them out to this tarmac. They're making them do push-ups and doubt-ups and running and flipping and doing all this to where they're so confused they don't know what they're doing. And the people are crying and they're freaking out because they're psychologically being toyed with. And guys, in the first few minutes of Hell Week, will literally get up and run over, and there's this famous bell for the Navy SEALs that you ring it, and you take your helmet off, and you put it down, and you say you're done, and you walk away. You're done. And these guys are going through all this stuff, going out there doing sit-ups with logs, lugging boats and throwing them in the water, staying in the water until they're near hypothermia, being brought out, do push-ups, run a couple miles in under this certain amount of time. You didn't do it. Roll around the sand, get wet again, and you're full. I'm just craziness, keeping them awake the entire time, but for four hours. And these guys go through this, this testing and this suffering. Why? To make them into seals? No. To see if they can be seals. They're weeding people out, not building them up. They're really bringing them in to see if they've got the kind of toughness and the kind of ability to become what is necessary to be a seal. And, they're, and, with these, and he speaks in the book. He says, when I get through it, I came out the other side. And I couldn't tell you, but there's a sense of pride that every seal has of making through that. There's a sense of pride a boasting when you get through your tests and you become, because very few people make it through. For him, it was a sense that he had made it through. He didn't feel bad for the other guys. He, he didn't understand, but he just knew he had made it. There was a sense of, I made it through this. So how can suffering become a boast? What I find interesting is that this is very similar to what, Jesus, what Paul is saying here. He's saying, listen, God brings these sufferings into our life knowing that the suffering will produce endurance. It'll produce a perseverance, a pressing in, a constant pushing, and not giving up. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep pressing. I'm going to keep moving. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to take it one day at a time. And God, you're going to be there for me. And what's hard about this is that we can talk about this in the secular way, like with the seal. You're like, oh yeah, people can make it through and they, they can learn endurance. But actually what we're looking at here is a different kind of endurance test. We're being asked to have an endurance with our faith. In the book of James and in the book of Peter where this language is repeated, you find that out. In fact, James chapter 1 verse 12 tells you the reasoning. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Why? Because when he stood the test, he's going to receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The loving of God is connected with the ability to press through. This is a test of our love, a test of our faith. If we're going to see that we're still at peace with God, or at some point are we going to sit here going through this mess and we're dealing with this and go, you know what? Forget it. God, you hate me. I know you're against me. This is ridiculous. I'm out. Bing. And we abandon the faith. Oh, how many people have we known that have begun the journey in Christianity only to give up when the trial hits? Only to tell God, you know what? You can just keep it. Because that's not what I signed up for. Christianity isn't a life of freedom from pain and suffering. Christianity is actually to see that these things mean something. They build something in us. They direct and lead us. So God's trying to show us something. He's trying to give us a chance to get through the other end so we can say, look, God, look at what you've given to me. 
I don't know what it was as a kid in the 80s, but for some reason, a particular seal wound up in my head. I don't know every commercial I watched talked about the USDA approving beef or something like that, but the USDA uh, seal of approval has been stuck in my head ever since as a kid. And so when I, whenever I think about quality, I go, oh, it's got the USDA seal of approval. You know, I don't know what that is. Maybe you guys are like, no, it's got to be organic. You know, I, whatever your seal of approval needs to be, we get the idea. I don't know what I thought, but somewhere back there in my childhood mind, I thought there was some kind of food inspector standing over every piece of beef that went by and went, that's good, USDA seal of approval, good, you know, and that's what was going on. It's silly, it's juvenile, whatever, that's me. And the, but that's not what's happening. What they're saying is that there was a standard of quality that these, pla- these places had to get to, and a standard testing had to go through in order to receive the seal of quality, the seal of approval. What God is doing as he's bringing us through these tests and through these trials and we're persevering so we can get to the other side. And what happens is you receive God's seal of approval. This word in verse 3 is odd. It's debated all the time. Or sorry, verse 4. It says, this endurance produces character. What is character? Well, we have all these arguments. Character is like personality. Character is what you do when nobody's looking. Character is what makes you up. Character is, is your idiosyncrasies. There's all these conversations about character, but the problem is they're debating over what word to use. Some of your translations may say experience. Now, the King James Version says experience. Because they're looking for a word. What, does, what word does, works with this Greek term? Because it, it's confusing. The Greek term literally means to be tested and not fallen apart. To be tested and shows its quality. Be tested and approved. Kid tested, God approved. You know, that kind of reality. And, and, and what God is doing here is he's saying, I'm putting you through this test. I'm putting you through this suffering. I'm putting you through this struggle of your, of your faith so you can endure in your faith and that'll prove to you the quality of your faith. It'll have a seal of quality on it. You know, I have yet to met a strong, deep Christian who hasn't said at some point in their life, you know, I just really wonder if I'm even saved. They've backed up and at some point in their journey been so confronted by their own sin, been so confronted by their own weak will that they step back and go, am I really following Christ? I mean, I know I said I trust him, but am I really doing this? Am I really saved? And it's that wrestling match right there that began so many of these people that I know who are so deep in the faith that led them forward. Because it was through the suffering, it was through the pain, it was through the stuff that they came out the other end. And they were sitting there with this tested faith that they had made it through it. They were still holding on to God. They hadn't rejected God. They hadn't run away going, you hate me. No, they were still going, God, I know we're at peace. And I'm going to hold on to this. You're doing something. I hate it. It hurts. But I am here. And they came out the other end, and they looked at their faith, and they said, if I can get through that, if I can get through that, there's nothing that's going to separate me from you, God. If I can make it through this mess, what, what could possibly get in between us? It was as if something was born in them. The word we use for somebody who is sure that they're headed to heaven or just waiting for it, it's called hope. Notice what he says. Endurance produces character, and character produces what? Hope. Say hope. That's what a Christian has. Christianity's always been based on this word, hope. It's what brings you through the trials. 
It's what brings you to the joy of worshiping your God is that there is hope. And hope's not like, boy, I hope I get a pony for Christmas. Not that kind of hope, okay? We're talking about the hope that when you get online and you open up Amazon and you click on whatever you're getting, somewhere out there a helicopter just took off with your package, right? No. Eventually, right? That's what they want to do. But the point is that UPS has just received a package. They've taken off and you get a tracking code and you can follow that tracking code around and you can know it's coming to your house at this time. And I'm the kind of person who knows if something's showing up that day, I'm running to my door going, is it here yet? Is it here yet? Is it here yet? My wife's like, sit down. No, is it here? Ding dong. Is that it? No. You know, because I have hope. It's an expectation of what's promised to be delivered to me. And that's the kind of hope that's born. When you've made it through the trial and you're sitting there with this approval of faith that's been tested, it's like gold refined in the fire, Scripture says. You're sitting there and it's like, it's so potent. You realize, oh, if I got this now, what could that possibly mean about, yeah, the logical conclusion is you can't wait because heaven's on its way. The kind of person that's being formed in you is somebody that matches with heaven. You see, yeah, if you're not a Christian, you can endure And it can build character. I'm not questioning that. But the question is, is the character any good? Who's to tell you? Because let's face the fact, Hitler went through a lot of suffering. He was thrown in jail. He was beat down. And through his sufferings, he penned a title about his struggle, his suffering, Mein Kampf. And he took his suffering and he turned it into a wicked character and put it across a nation. And affected the world. Just because we endure through suffering and build some kind of character doesn't mean it's good. I'm not saying you're going to end up like Hitler. You could wind up with some good character. The question is, what do you match it to? So that you know it's a quality. And the answer is for us as Christians, the gospel has given us a chance to match ourselves up with God because we're not fighting with him anymore. And what we find is when we've gone through suffering, when we've gone through struggles, we wind up having a compassion that's a lot like God's compassion. We wind up having a joy that's a lot like God's joy. We wind up having a hope in God's promises like he knows his promises are going to come through. There's this one-to-one correspondence with the God of eternity and our lives today. And that gives you hope that one day I'm going to be walking with God breathing the new breath in that realm of grace. And it's just, it's a picture, and it's no wonder the mystics and the scholars and the writers of Christian history have all been unanimous. It is those who have suffered the most who act often the most like God. They're the ones who've gone through pain, they have the most to say. They're the ones who've gone through the worst cases and stayed with God, they step out, and they're able to teach us so many things. That's why the persecuted church is so powerful. Because they've suffered so much and they're so capable of giving such wisdom from their suffering because they identify with Christ in ways that honestly us Americans who abandon the suffering all the time can't hook into. Because we do, don't we? Suffering comes and we grab credit. Suffering comes and we'll throw down something else. Suffering comes and we'll figure a way around it. So when the major suffering hits, we, we don't know what to do. But God is not against you. 
When you're at peace with God, you realize that the God is using this to shape you. He's using this to transform you. When you're at peace with God, it changes everything. It even changes our suffering. And some of us go, wait, wait, wait. Then what does it mean if I'm failing? What does it mean that I, I, I'm, I'm struggling and I'm, I'm frustrated and I'm, I'm upset with God that this is here and I don't know what to do? And I say, well, one, you might be fighting. And maybe it's time to surrender and just say, you know what, I'm going to give this to you, God. I'm not going to believe that you're not fighting with me anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to just believe that you're with me in this. But if you're hurting and you're crying out and, you're, and you want God to remove, it doesn't mean you failed. The only way to fail in suffering is to literally hang up your hat and ring the bell and go join the enemy again and say, you know what, I'm done with you, God. Get lost. I'm ready to have a war. You, this is what I saw. No way. That's where, that's when we failed. But even if you're before Christ, even if you've not followed Christ yet, and you're going, you know what, this is, this is intriguing to me that God would be with me, that he would change my sufferings, he would, he would change this to his perspective, keep seeking it out. Don't, don't resist when he gives you that opportunity to take the step forward and watch him walk with you. It's so important that we realize that. You say, but I'm so weak. That's right. Look at verse six for a second. For while we were weak, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's while we're weak that God is willing to aid us. It's while we're suffering that God is willing to step in. It's no wonder then the picture is so different. Look at verse five, because it shows us that suffering is not a fight with God. It's a journey we take with God. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has been given to us. We have entered into a relationship with God to go through a journey with God in suffering, not a fight with God in suffering. And that's radically different. I love my wife. And she loves me. We, we, we fell in love. We, way back 10 years ago, I asked her to marry me. And because of that, we got married. And we moved in. Because that's what you do when you love somebody. The way that I love my wife. Isn't it interesting then that God, who loves us so much, would do the same? Look at this verse. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured into our lives, into our hearts. The heart was the center of the life. He's, God's poured out his love. And so it's not like God's up in heaven going, here's my love. Do you feel my love? And it's like somehow we're supposed to feel this heartbeat of love. Me and my wife have that heartbeat of love, and sometimes it's romantic in my house, but it's not always romantic because my kids would get sick. And so that's just the reality that you don't always feel the romantic love. That's not what God's saying. He just doesn't go, love, here's always love. No, when, God, when you love each other, you move in together after you got married, after you made that commitment. When I come to Christ, we make a commitment that Christ is taking my sin and he's giving me his life and his righteousness and then what happens? God moves in with me. After the commitment, God moves into my heart. He moves into my life. That's what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit isn't some power. It's God himself living with us. It's God's presence itself that shows his love to us. That he hasn't left us in the suffering. He hasn't left us in the struggle. He's right there walking with us in it. When my mom died four years ago, I can remember this, the, having the sensation so many people told me about. 
that God was silent. Where is God? I don't hear him. It's like he's just abandoned me. What I realized is uh, really quickly is that God's not abandoned you. I hate, to, I hate to say it, but when people come up to you and you're in suffering, and they're like, how are you doing? Isn't that the most annoying question in the world? You're just kind of like, you know how I'm doing. Why are you asking me the question? Or they come to you and it's like, you really need to talk. Come on, let's talk. And they're trying to make you talk when you don't want to talk. You're not ready to talk. That's some of the worst kind of stuff. We mean well by it. We're trying. We don't know really what to say. And some of you guys are going, I did that. Uh Uh-oh. You know, we have all done it. But the bottom line is the best thing we learned it back in youth ministry. The best thing when you help somebody who's suffering is just to be present. Just sit down and be near. Guess what happens? In time, they talk. In time, they release. In time, they begin to let it out. And you listen. And you listen. And then you speak appropriately when, you, when they've opened the door for you to speak. Guess why God stays silent in your suffering? Because he's not the one going, hey, how you doing? You know, you really need to talk to me right now. You know what would happen if God did that? We'd be like, get out of the way. No, God just sits and waits. He sits present in the suffering, waiting for you to work through it to the point where you're ready to turn to him and just say, hey, God, I need to talk. And he goes, yeah. It was fascinating when I finally came to him in the midst of it all, and I started getting the word. Scriptures that had never meant anything to me burst to life. In the middle of the struggle, suddenly because I knew I was not, God was not against me in this. He wasn't punishing me in this. He wasn't angry at me. I was at peace with him. I suddenly was able to receive the love from other people who were willing to give me their prayers and their cares and their bad questions. Suddenly I was able to enjoy my church and I was able to mourn with my family and my God was right there, not far, far away, just appropriately present. Not forcing it. And not far. When you're at peace with God, it changes everything. He loves us. He puts himself in my life. And I've never seen it more powerful than the life of a couple that, that used to go to this church many years ago. They called me up. They were an older couple. And I was kind of like, oh, yeah, come on over. And um, they sat down in my office. Their eyes bloated. Their faces red. And their backs bent over with grief. They had just found the night before their daughter dead in their, in their office. She had committed suicide in their home. And I'll tell you what, that's when you, you'd rather be a plumber than a pastor. I'll tell you right there. Because I'm sitting there scouring my, my, my knowledge of theology, scouring my seminary training and counseling, and we just didn't seem to cover this one. Thank God for the youth training that it was just sit and be quiet and listen. And as I listened and I listened and they cried and we prayed, I asked them one question. I said, how are you doing with God? Because I, I couldn't imagine what they were going through. They leaned over to me and they said, we are absolutely destroyed. But our God is so good. He is so powerful and he has a great purpose for this. And we don't know why right now, but he is holding us. And I went, Whoa. 
they came out of that fire, and while, yeah, they still have their pain, they're able to minister to the church that they're at right now in a way that they open their hearts up and they use their testimony and God touches lives. But when they look at their life, I guarantee you, they sit there and they say, if we can go through that and God can hold us up, there's nothing that's gonna separate us from him. There's nothing that's gonna keep us from ever being with him in heaven. We have peace with him. and There's nothing that can take that away. You see, when you have peace with God, it changes everything. And your sufferings are not a fight with God. In fact, we have to ask ourselves this question, are we willing to stop seeing our struggles as part of a fight with God? As if something's going on between us. Are you willing to see your struggles as God may be building you and training you and teaching you and leading you to something greater? Maybe even the quality of what heaven is about. To give you an assurance and a surety. Are you willing to stop seeing your struggles as part of a fight with God? We have peace with him. I hope that you'll live in it. Would you bow your heads with me? This morning, you may be actually at a place where you're saying, hey, I came because I'm in a bunch of struggles. And I thought God was mad at me. I thought he was, I thought he was upset at my sin. Like, and I want to tell you, um, as a point of clarity, yes, God is upset with our sins. But trust me, he's not unleashed what we deserve for them on you. No, he's being patient. These warning shots of suffering that come through our life is because we're messed up. It's because we can't control this world. And he's trying to remind us that we are not the ones who can manage this world. We are not the ones who can lead our lives. And he's saying, come, you need someone greater. You need someone who knows all this and can put it in perspective and walk with you. And, but the problem is we're, we're fighting with him. And God has said, come, surrender, throw up the white flag. I've removed all the consequences of sin. My son Jesus has taken them upon himself. And Jesus has died on the cross to bear them and rose from the dead to bring you back into a relationship with his father. Not just to remain forgiven, but to actually have that relationship with the father. And the beautiful thing about that is you don't earn it. You don't go get cleaned up and, and get yourself all straightened out and then receive God's gift of forgiveness and reconciliation. No, you just throw down your arms right where you are, stop fighting, and just surrender. It's while we are weak, while we are messed up, that he gives us forgiveness. And, you, and, and, and hear me, you're not running to some rules. You're not jumping into a religion of Christianity where this and this and this has to be obeyed. No, it's a relationship with the living God who ceases to be the God upstairs in heaven but becomes the God who dwells in your life. That's how much he's forgiven us. That's how much he wants that relationship with you through Jesus. And if you don't have that, he's offering it to you today. And to have that relationship, all you do is receive it. Maybe God's calling you right now to receive it. To receive this gift of forgiveness and reconciliation in Jesus. And maybe right now you're saying, I want to receive that gift. I'm done fighting. I'm ready to surrender. If that's you and God's calling you out and he's saying, come, come, receive it. 
I'd love to pray with you and walk you through a prayer. But just let me know that you're receiving that by putting your hand up. By doing that, it's clear that you're saying, yes, God, I'm surrendering. Amen.